It's 6 o'clock on the dot. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, January 22nd, 2024. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news... Joe Parisi has induced State Senator Melissa Agard in the race to be his successor as Dane County Executive. Wisconsin is receiving funding for farm-to-school programs. A local dairy farmer discusses sustainable practices. And in the second half, a climate scientist discusses the ups and downs of Wisconsin weather. This Friday is an important anniversary for the American Civil War, Civil War and two new movies are available on the small screen. This is Sam Swartz and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in B- on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are your headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Waukesha County today to deliver a speech on the 51st anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. Harris's remarks centered on the rolling back of women's right to abortion care after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Harris's presence in Waukesha County is no accident. Waukesha County has long been a stronghold of Republican support in the state, but has been trending more liberal in the past few elections. The speech by Harris kicks off a national tour where the vice president will be speaking on access to abortion services. Meanwhile, Republicans in the Wisconsin Assembly introduced a bill last Friday that would hold a referendum on whether abortions in Wisconsin should be banned after 14 weeks of pregnancy. Current Wisconsin law bans abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. The referendum would be put on the ballot for the April elections and would be binding if passed by voters. However, the bill is unlikely to become law, reports the Associated Press. Governor Evers has vowed to veto any bill that further restricts access to abortion care here in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew expressed reluctance on holding a contentious vote with little likelihood for passage. The state also has a 19th century law on the books that some have interpreted as outlawing abortion. A Dane County judge ruled this fall that the law only applied to feticide, and the, and the law is likely to be reviewed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. A new drug has been linked to more than 100 deaths in Milwaukee County over the last year. Xylazine, a tranquilizer for large animals, accounts for around 5% of all overdose deaths in Wisconsin, reports the Capital Times. Right now, it is legal to possess and distribute test strips that screen for xylazine, as the drug is not a controlled substance in federal or state law. In general, state law considers test strips for controlled substances illegal drug paraphernalia. Fentanyl test strips are the exception. The Hospital Sisters Health System announced today that it would be pulling out of the western Wisconsin region, closing two hospitals in the area. Sacred Heart Hospital in Eau Claire and St. Joseph's Hospital in Chippewa Falls will both permanently close their doors, along with several nearby clinics. All operations are expected to stop by late June, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The move comes amid increasing financial struggles for rural health care providers, with the Marshfield Clinic system in central Wisconsin announcing that it would furlough 3% of its workforce last week. Following the closure, Eau Claire will have two other hospitals. St. Joseph's was the only hospital in Chippewa Falls. 
The City of Madison and the Eminent Development Corporation have reached a tentative deal to build an affordable housing project on Madison's south side, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The city would sell a vacant one-third acre site on Park Street to the development company for $1 and provide a $2 million deferred loan using federal money from the American Rescue Plan Act. In return, the developer is planning on constructing a 44-unit residential building on the property with 11 units set aside for youth aging out of the foster care system. The rest of the units would be restricted to residents who make no more than 60% of the median income in Dane County. Youths who age out of the foster care system can struggle to find housing due to a lack of rental history, co-signers, or credit history. The National Foster Youth Institute estimates that about a fifth of all foster youth are homeless the instant they age out of the system. The project is slated to begin construction in late 2024, with units opening up a year later. In other youth, youth housing news, the Rohr Shabbat House at University of Wisconsin-Madison is considering a substantial expansion to its space in downtown Madison, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The house, which serves Jewish UW-Madison students, has seen an increase in demand for its meal services, especially around Jewish high holidays and Passover, with hundreds of students having to be turned away due to space constraints. The house is considering renovating their current property into a five-story building, which would sit next to the Peace Park near State Street. The renovations would require demolishing a nearby building. The proposal would need to be approved by the city and raise the necessary capital funds, but construction could begin as early as 2025. St. Bernard Catholic Church has been named the Cathedral for the Diocese of Madison, following approval by the Holy See, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The diocese has been operating without a cathedral since 2005, when the St. Raphael Cathedral near the Capitol Square was burned in an act of arson. St. Bernard, which is on Atwood Avenue on Madison's east side, is currently undergoing renovation, and the new demands on the cathedral will be incorporated into that project. The move comes amid another large change in the diocese, as it consolidates its more than 100 parishes into 30 pastorates by the end of 2024. The City Streets Division says tomorrow's commute is expected to be slippery and glazed with ice, thanks to a slushy mix expected to fall tonight on top of some already challenging roads. The city says crews will be on duty overnight and into Tuesday morning to apply salt on high traffic roads. The city plans on plowing residential areas around sometime tomorrow afternoon to push thawing slush from the roads. That might mean another pass at your driveway or sidewalk with your shovel. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. The spring election is counting down, but one thing that won't be on your ballot is Dane County Executive. Instead, that'll come this fall, with the ensuing 41 weeks ample time for both declared candidates to make their message known. Today, with a few months left before he retires, outgoing County Exec Joe Parisi took the opportunity to endorse one candidate in the race. WORT news producer Faye Parks was there. After more than a dozen years heading up Dane County, outgoing County Executive Joe Parisi has picked who he wants to see as his successor. And that candidate, Parisi announced today, is Melissa Agard. Melissa Agard is the person I believe is best suited for that job. Parisi announced his endorsement this afternoon at a press event at Bayview, one of Madison's oldest and most diverse housing complexes. Bayview is also the site of a massive $52 million redevelopment to add more affordable housing and revitalize the decades-old space. And it's the site where Melissa Agard, 
current senator from Madison, former minority leader in the legislature, and former Dane County supervisor, spent time growing up. I was raised in this neighborhood and I benefited from so many of the services that are critical to keeping our community moving forward. Fast forward a few decades and her mom, Mary Berryman Agard, is now the president of the Bayview Foundation. Speaking today within Bayview's now expanded community center, Executive Parisi touted Agard's experience, abilities, and approach. Agard said she would continue Parisi's priorities as he retires. Like Joe, I will always stand up for social justice, racial equity in public education, environmental protections, and a smart economic growth and development. Agard faces one declared challenger in the race for county executive. That's Regina Vitiver, an alder on Madison City Council, representing the near west side of the city. When reached for comment today, Vitiver told WORT she was not aware that County Executive Parisi had endorsed her opponent. But she says she also has insider knowledge of county government, having worked at the Department of Health Services for the last six years. So there are very many, very many processes that are similar across government agencies. My experience is more internal, shall we say. Vitiver lists many of the same priorities as Agard, racial equity, affordable housing, and environmental protection. And she added another, prioritizing programs that would lead to more public transportation and fewer cars on the road. Vitiver says if you're planning to vote in the Dane County Executive's race come fall, you should pay attention to both campaigns before casting a vote. I think that it's important for people to have choice in who they elect to the leadership. You know, I think it's good for voters to understand that there are going to be a lot of similarities between the candidates in these races, but also some differences. Parisi retires the first week of May. The position will be filled by an interim county executive selected by the Dane County Board until November's general election. Parisi says that timing was purposeful. I think it's good because it'll be a record turnout, basically, when you have a presidential election, so you get the most participation. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Programs that try to get more locally grown food into school cafeterias have sparked a movement around the United States. In Wisconsin, new grant money will soon be available to help foster these efforts, especially for underserved school districts with distinct cultural needs. Mike Moen from the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. In making school meals healthier, so-called farm-to-school programs are nothing new. But Wisconsin might see such efforts reach new heights with a grant program taking shape. Starting February 1st, Wisconsin will be one of four states in the Great Lakes region to accept grant applications from community partners, developing plans for getting more locally grown foods into school cafeterias. The funding comes from the USDA and the Lake Michigan School Food System Innovation Hub is facilitating the effort. Dahi Wolf of the statewide group Kids Forward says the primary mission is simple. We want local, healthy school food that kids love to eat. Kids Forward is a member of the Innovation Hub and is helping leading Wisconsin's rollout to the grant initiative. Wolf says having healthier options might enhance student outcomes while also getting more culturally appropriate options in diverse school districts. He says a key challenge is that the National School Lunch Program is restrictive in providing reimbursements for the types of food that are served. Wolf points to efforts in Stevens Point to serve Monk cuisine to high school students. That's led to discussions to seek more federal exceptions. Meanwhile, he says enhancing the farm-to-school pipeline could be a big plus in a state like Wisconsin. We're not like Iowa that's a mostly a commodity state with corn. I mean, we, we have local growers, and so we have all this opportunity to connect local communities to the producers. He says this benefits local economies. 
Moll says Wisconsin will prioritize gathering feedback from students so they're clear about the food they want to eat. The grants range from $10,000 to $250,000. The overall program is designed to last for five years. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This last Saturday, the 22nd, was National Cheese Lovers Day. Fans of Gouda, Fontina, Mozzarella, Asiago, and the rest took the day to celebrate one of Wisconsin's most beloved products. Mark Crave co-owns Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, located in Waterloo, Wisconsin. He shared some industry insight with WORT news producer Faye Parks earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Mark. You're welcome. So to start, you co-own Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, which is located about 40 minutes east of Madison. Can you tell us a little bit about your business? Our business is both a active dairy farm and cheese factory. So it was originally started by my brothers and myself over 40 years ago. And for the first 20 of those 40 years, we were purely dairy farmers. So we were active in growing crops, raising cattle, caring for cattle and milking them two or three times a day and selling the milk on the market. And in 2002, we completed construction of a farmstead cheese factory and started at that time converting our farmstead milk into a farmstead cheese. And we've uh, been doing that for the last 20 years. So you mentioned that you are a farmstead. What exactly does that mean? Well, what that means is that we produce cheese with milk that's produced by our own cows right here on the farm. It's a one chain. We have no suppliers other than ourselves. We don't buy milk on the open market to convert into cheese. All the milk that we make our cheese into is produced by our cows right here, right across the road from the cheese factory. About 100 yards away is where we milk the cows and we pipe the milk into the cheese factory. So we have very fresh milk that we can also melt the milk to the type of cheese we're making. So the, the cows produce milk that is suitable to make the types of cheese that we make. I'm curious too, are you a legacy cheesemaker or is this something that you started with your brothers? Well, actually, it's kind of funny because we did start with my brothers. We joked at the time that uh, of all the people in the state of Wisconsin that have made cheese before, we're not them, but yet we dove in right from scratch into our own cheese production. So while we don't have a family legacy of making cheese, we do tap into the state of Wisconsin and the legacy we have in America's Dairyland around cheese making, both with programming through our uh, trade associations, through the University of Wisconsin and the Center for Dairy research from our dairy farmers of Wisconsin promotion group. So while we don't have that legacy uh, within our DNA, we certainly have within the DNA of the state. So even so, you said that you've been in the business for about 40 years. Would you say that the dairy industry has changed in that time? 
Well, certainly. In 40 years, everything changes, right? And we've certainly seen the numbers of dairy farms in the state of Wisconsin decline, yet we still produce as much or more milk as we did 40 years ago on fewer farms. We've also seen the level of technology and equipment that we can use on a dairy farm. You know, we've transitioned from a very manually labor-intensive dairy farm to a while it's still labor intensive, uh, we get to use a lot more machinery. We have uh, better environments for our cows and the people who care for them. We've learned a lot more about nutrition over all those years and what the cows consume and what we grow on our land and, and the relationship between the nutrients from the soil and how that translates into the feed for the cows and then the milk and in turn the cheese. So you touched on a few things, but my understanding is that your business is quite focused on innovation and sustainability. What are some other practices that you implement day to day? Well, we implement practices that make sense for our farm or our cheese business. And so I always think that kind of the sweet spot in agriculture is when we can blend the science, you know, the science that evolves from our land grant universities and from proven research And when we can meld that with just good old-fashioned farmer know-how, that's kind of the sweet spot because then we get good practical solutions to challenges that we have on the farm. And that's what we're always doing. We're just always looking for the better mousetrap, better way to care for cattle, to keep the cows more comfortable, keep them in a better environment, maybe on days with inclement weather, to uh, have better nutrition so that they can produce high-quality milk then in you know the other technologies that come with it is around how we milk them or or equipment we use for manufacturing the cheese so we're just always looking at opportunities to do things better that make sense for the land the cattle the people and in turn you know the product at the end we have to have a very high quality product people look for dairy to be highly nutritious and and a fun part of our everyday lives and so that's the end outcome that we're striving for And about how many cows are producing on your farmstead? We milk 2,200 cows three times a day. And in order to feed those cows, we farm about 3,000 acres of uh, farmland here in the glacial drumland area of southeast Wisconsin. So it's a sizable farming operation. We have, in my family, we have 11 family members who uh, work here every day, along with about 80 non-family staff members. So there's, there's a lot going on. There's always work and work for everybody, for sure. Would you say that your farmstead is of average size? Is it larger or smaller? What does the what does the market look like? Well, uh, our farm fits our family's goals and and our our land base here. So, um, you know, the average Wisconsin farm I think is somewhere around 200 cows. And so you have to factor in that there's there's different geographical areas that maybe a lot, can't sustain a large herd. There's other areas where where there's much larger herds. And so that's all determined by the individual farmer. We really look at our farm at what does our land base support? What does our management support? You know, there's an obviously there's an investment in a farm. You know, what does our family feel comfortable with investing in in the form of farmland or, or farm equipment? And, and the whole thing plays out like that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that over time we see fewer and fewer farms is because a lot of farmers over time just made decisions that they weren't going to, you know, continue to invest in whatever that be modern technology or, or a new improved barn. And so, you know, a lot of those little red barns sustained a family using entirely family labor and, and lifestyles change right now. Lifestyles have changed to where a lot of kids don't desire to get up and go to the barn every morning before school and, and help with chores. So it's just an evolution of our society on how work gets done and, and in this case specifically on a dairy farm. 
So this last Saturday, the 20th, was National Cheese Lovers Day. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this holiday and how Crave Brothers celebrates? Well, right. I, <laughs> actually, Faye, you know, on our farm and on our uh, cheese plant, every day is Cheese Lovers Day, right? We uh, like to celebrate cheese here in, in America's Dairyland. It's a highly nutritious way to consume dairy. Oftentimes, we can do it in a fun fashion, whether it be on top of a pizza or part of a charcuterie board or over the holidays. So we just use this opportunity just to recognize the part that cheese plays in our everyday diets and in our culture with families and friends. And so we just recognize it. And again, we just kind of around here, it's, you know, we still have to milk our cows and we still have the work to do. And we just appreciate the recognition we get from the rest of the state and from consumers who take our product home and feed it to their families. You know, there's really, for me, there's no higher praise for my product than someone willing to take it off the shelf and take it home and share it with their family. Or, or with friends over a celebration that makes it all worthwhile. What is your favorite Crave Brothers cheese and what is your best performing product? Well, that's a lot like asking who are your favorite children. A lot of it's seasonal because some of our cheeses are seasonal. You know, certainly our fresh mozzarella is a high uh, uses in the summertime or when we have fresh salads and, and eating eating all fresh. Uh, that fresh mozzarella really fits into that and is a nice complement to a light meal. You know, the same thing could be said in the wintertime around uh, pizza or anything. But one of my favorite things that we have right now is one of our newest products, and that's a... Uh, chocolate mascarpone, which is really decadent, creamy that can just be enjoyed on a, on a sweet cracker or cookie. That's one of my favorites right now. And we also have uh, a lot of string cheese that's fun to share just for a snack, just to grab out of the refrigerator at the end of the day and have something to tide me over until dinner. Why do you think cheese is such a big deal here in Wisconsin? <laughs> Well, I think one of the reasons it's a big thing is because we have the dairy culture. And I think we've also embraced all the unique different types of cheeses. You know, a lot of the rest of the country maybe gave up on those. But I think here in Wisconsin, because of the legacy of master cheesemakers and the and the ability to make the cheese, I think we all appreciate all the different types of cheese there are. There's different cheeses that any meal or any application. So that just makes it a lot of fun. You know, it's great for our state economy without our cheese industry, you know, Wisconsin wouldn't be the state it is. Uh, dairy farms and cheese factories support a lot of jobs, a lot of tax money that go to our local schools and some of our most rural areas. You know, the rural economy really depends on agriculture. and We're blessed to have the dairy and the cheese industry here that other states would just love to have that value added. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Mark. You're welcome, Faye. It was my pleasure. That was Mark Crave, who co-owns Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese in Waterloo, Wisconsin. He says our state's dairy industry is a standout in the country because we have embraced dairy culture and produce a uniquely wide variety of cheeses. Mark also says that while he appreciates the sentiment of National Cheese Lovers Day, Crave Brothers celebrates cheese every day of the year. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Extreme weather is becoming the new normal here in Wisconsin, as evidenced by last week's icy temperatures. To dig deeper into Great Lakes weather trends, Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore checked in with Dr. Steve Bavris, a senior scientist at UW-Madison's Nelson Institute Center for Climate Research. You know you live in Wisconsin 
when it goes below zero for like most of a week and hardly anybody talks about it, you know, Packers, yep, politics, yep, uh, but not a mention of the deathly temps that are a way to kill you when you take out the garbage. Um, yet, come summer, when the temp goes above 85 and Wisconsinites stay in the house and call each other on the phone about it, all, all of this would, would be in good fun. We're not for the fact that those warmer days are getting warmer and more plentiful. More to talk about, I guess. Dr. Steve Vavris is a senior scientist at the UW Madison Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research. His specialty includes extreme weather and Great Lakes region weather trends, and among many other things. Dr. Vavris, good morning and welcome to the Friday Buzz. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, it's sometimes hard for non scientists to, to think in terms of like, in millennia, um, it, it, we tend to, to point to an unusually hot day in August, like I was saying, and say, see, climate change. So, it, it's a little weird, but just for context, what would the weather have been like in Wisconsin this week 10,000 years ago? Well, uh, no one uh, can, can pinpoint a specific week in the past, but we do know that uh, 10,000 years ago, it wasn't long after glaciers receded from Wisconsin following the peak of the last ice age. So I would expect that our winters were still uh, awfully cold at that point, um, similar to what we've experienced the past week, in fact. Hmm. Uh, but your point's well taken. We need to think of climate change in the big picture and not get uh, too hung up on a single week or a single month hmm. or a single year. Hmm. Uh, there have been huge variations in climate over millennia and, and millions of year timescales. Yeah, even that 10,000-year example is a drop in the bucket, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Right. In fact, when I talk about climate change to public audiences and I say things like, well, this only happened 10,000 years ago, I get chuckles. And then I realize, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, for most people, that's a long time. But for, you know, a, a climatologist, that really is a drop yeah, in the bucket. There's nothing to it. Um, some of your research focuses on how heat waves and cold spells, floods and droughts and things like that respond to, to changing climate in the U.S. If you would connect the dots uh, between those weather conditions uh, I just described and the occurrences of things um, uh, like floods and, and, and wildfires. Um, the, how, how are those two things interrelated? The, the more, more flooding, wildfires, and worries and, and, and physical evidence of climate change? Right. So in total, uh, we're seeing an increase in extreme weather collectively. In fact, last year in the U.S., we had $28 billion weather disasters. That was a new record. And there's been an upward trend in that, that statistic over the years. And some of these extreme weather events, like you described, are interconnected. Um, when we get these big undulations in the jet stream and the, and, and the winds uh, move in places where they, they, they aren't typically seen, um, we, we, one place like Wisconsin could be very cold. But then downstream and the other part of the jet stream, it could be very warm, unusually warm. And we get the same sort of things in terms of cold and, and or, um, in terms of wet and dry. Uh, for yet the warmest December on record in Wisconsin just now, but yet parts of Asia were really shivering. Parts of Siberia had record cold. China was really struggling. Blizzards in Moscow. So um, it's not uncommon for one part of the world to have a very different, even opposing type of extreme weather at the same time as another area has, has a different type. This question returns to the time compendium we, we touched on a moment ago. Many of us um, think the human impact on climate change has a comparatively contemporary starting line. 
um, like with the Industrial Revolution. But it goes back much further than that, right? Can, can you, can you uh, put the, the human fingerprints on this more a, 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 in a relevant time? Right. So I give you a couple of time scales, and both of them involved uh, human land use decisions or land management. If you go back and look at the literature on climate change from about the 1800s, including in Wisconsin during a time of rapid deforestation, people were really concerned about the climatic effects that deforestation was having on our local climate, uh, creating more extremes, for example. And, and that's a, a reasonable uh, expectation as we get less forest cover. Um, but if you go back much farther to the time of uh, the beginning of agriculture, about 10,000 years ago, uh, research that I've done with others, including folks at UW-Madison, have indicated that uh, probably the human fingerprint on global climate began with the Industrial Revolution. And within a few thousand years, we'd actually changed the normal evolution of uh, carbon dioxide and methane concentrations in the atmosphere to the point where we were artificially warming global climate way back when, well before the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, the, the few thousand years of, of for the evidence to show, that really sounds just like a, a, a nanosecond. Right, right. Um, but it also makes perfect sense because when, when there was large-scale uh, deforestation and rice paddy cultivation with the advent of agriculture, that, that necessarily put more carbon into the atmosphere, transferring it from land. Uh, so I think it does make sense, but you're right. It, it's not that long ago, but it, it's considerably farther back than most people think. When we think about global climate change, we generally think it began, you know, 200 years ago with industrialization. Um, but I and many others think that it began much earlier than that. You know, Steve, um, for someone who who, who, who is called to, to talk about these rather alarming conditions, you have a really soothing voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I try to be positive. There are some positives in, uh, amidst the negatives. Well, I haven't heard uh, any so yet, but uh, but your voice is, um, is is very calm and soothing. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, that calm and soothing voice um, with the head full of climatology, as Dr. Steve Favre says, he's a senior scientist at UW-Madison Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research. Um, he, he is also available uh, by the hour to read uh, uh, bedtime stories to your children. So um, uh, that's, uh, it, it, that's a side gate. Um, sorry about that. Uh, it, give my, us my Mr. Um, Rogers imitation, right? <laughs> yes. Um, Steve, give us uh, the thumbnail on what's melting and, and the rate in the Arctic. Well, there's two types of ice that's melting that are melting in the Arctic. One being glacier or land ice, like the Greenland ice sheet. And that kind of ice is concerning because it can raise global sea levels. Uh, so if you have, uh, say, you know, ice on land and then it melts, that meltwater increases the mass of the ocean and we get sea level rise. The other major type of ice that's melting in the Arctic is sea ice or ice that forms in seawater. When it melts, it does not increase global sea level but it does amplify the warming in that region, which is already warming two to four times faster than the rest of the world. And so that has real big climate implications. It also has ecological and economic implications because uh, certain animals like walruses and polar bears depend on sea ice as their habitat. And shipping is much easier to achieve in the Arctic when you don't have a thick ice pack. So all of these changes that are quickly happening in the Arctic have a lot of societal and ecological ramifications. 
Amid all these changes, and you touched on uh, the human um, impact of these things from long ago, but just give us a, a real quick click list of, of the key human contributor to climate change in 2024. Well, if you're thinking long-term climate change, it's always the human influence. Um, the, the fact that we've put so much carbon into the atmosphere, highest levels of CO2 potentially in millions, well, certainly in, in millions of years, perhaps as many as 14 million, according to recent research. Um, so there's always that. Um, but in addition, this year and ne- this year and last year, we had a very strong El Nino event, so unusually strong warming in the tropical Pacific Ocean waters. And that alters weather patterns all around the world, and including here in North America. And that probably con- has contributed to our generally mild winter until the past week. Um, and so those are two major uh, factors for our climate this year. And some people have speculated that the big underground or underwater volcano uh, a year or two ago in the Pacific could have put enough um, water vapor into the atmosphere to also amplify the warming. Hmm. So that's still being researched, but that's another potential factor. Do you believe that the genie is out of the bottle with regard to humans correcting behaviors and consumption in time to arrest climate change? I think we, we shouldn't view this in a binary way, like either we stop climate change or we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, climate change is going to continue to happen. There's enough so-called warming in the pipeline, um, emissions that haven't yet been realized in terms of temperature change, that we, we're going to continue. It's sort of like a, a fast-moving train. You can't just stop it on a dime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we can do is reduce the, the pace of change, just like slowing down that train, and then eventually bring it to a halt. Um, and so there are a lot of initiatives at the federal level, federal government, state government, uh, private industry and consumers that are heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But we need to accelerate that pace because we are really behind the, the eight ball here. You keep track of the Madison Lakes first freeze and thaw dates. What, what can you tell us about those trends in the last 50 years or last 100 years or more? You know, the Madison Lake record is phenomenal. Uh, Lake Minona and Lake Mendota have a 170-year-long continuous record. Winger is a little more uh, spotty than By that, record, but, what do you mean? Oh, oh um, a record kept. Yeah, a record kept, yeah. right. So the dates at, on which the, the ice forms mm-hmm. in, the, in the winter and when it melts off in the spring. Yeah. And it's very unusual to have a, such a long and continuous climate record. Mm-hmm. And the ice records not just the temperature in a given month, but over many months from fall to spring, basically. So it gives us a good window into what the climate was like in the past. And it shows clearly that Madison's climate has been warming over the years. Uh, If you look at the average amount uh, or duration of ice cover back in the 1800s, it was um, uh, nearly four months out of the year. And in the 20th century, it dropped to about three and a half months. And in the 21st century, it's only three months. So we've gone from nearly four months to, to, you know, down to three months. And one winter in the 1800s, in 1880, 81, the ice was on the lakes on Mendota for five and a half months, God. nearly half the year. Oh, my God. It didn't, it didn't melt until May. I just, you know, oh. we, we've never achieved anything close to that in recent years. But What year uh, was that again? The, temperature, the winter of 1880, 81, yeah. wow. we had a phenomenal amount of snow. Yes. It was terribly cold. Um, but it's a reminder that the climate can be very, very different from what we experience <laughs> now. This is silly, but I can't resist asking a climatologist. What's your favorite season as a Wisconsinite? Oh, 
You know, it, it's you're not going to like this answer because it's it's wishy washy. But I, there's things about every season I like. Um, I do enjoy the the chill of winter and getting out and walking on the lakes and cross country skiing and so forth. But it's not easy to go for a long bike ride in the winter. So I like that part about summer better. Um, and then the, the fall colors. Uh, so, you know, it depends. Uh, and as a, a meteorologist, climatologist, there's always something to enjoy. It's always changing. It's weather is like theater. Uh, mm. Something always to keep track of. I, I don't think that's a wishy-washy answer at all, especially someone that uh, that's in your line of work. Steve Bavis, thank you for joining us on the Friday Buzz, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for the invitation. 200,000 African Americans fought in the Civil War. That's after the United States War Department authorized Massachusetts to recruit African Americans into the Union Army on January 26, 1863. On this week's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson celebrates the anniversary of that authorization, which is this Friday. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, January 26th, is the anniversary of the day in 1863 that the U.S. War Department first authorized Massachusetts to recruit African Americans into the Union Army. Initially, more than a 1,000 men responded, one-fourth from slave states, some from as far away as Canada and the Caribbean. The 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment was formed and appointed to lead. It was a young white officer from an abolitionist family, Robert Gould Shaw. Eventually, 200,000 African Americans served in the military, about 10% of the Union forces. Three-quarters of them were formerly enslaved people. They served in segregated units and received less training, pay, and equipment than white soldiers. They were led by white officers, with few exceptions. The U.S. Army had never accepted black soldiers until that time. Blacks had also been excluded from state militias since 1792. But African-American soldiers had served in all the nation's wars, starting with the Revolutionary War. African-Americans had served in the Navy as shipboard firemen, stewards, and even boat pilots since 1861. After the Civil War broke out on April 12, 1861, abolitionists like Frederick Douglass pressed for the Army to take African-American soldiers. He said, Once let the black man get upon his person brass letters, U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, Douglas said, and there is no power on earth which can deny that he has earned his citizenship. The Emancipation Proclamation of January 1, 1863, stated explicitly that African Americans could serve in the military. This opened the army to black soldiers for the first time, but there was a reluctance to use African Americans in combat, partly due to racism, and so African Americans were restricted to garrison duty and support services. In fact, black soldiers and their officers were in grave danger if they were captured in combat. The Confederate President Jefferson Davis threatened to execute or enslave black prisoners, but retracted the threat of execution under threat of Union reprisals. African American troops under such extreme pressure, fought courageously and took risks that white soldiers often would not. In their first major battle at Fort Hudson, Louisiana, on March 27, 1863, African Americans proved their bravery. Two African American infantry units repeatedly charged against withering artillery and rifle fire, 
with nearly 200 casualties. And in one of the war's bloodiest battles on June 7th at Milken Bend, Louisiana, two black infantry units fought alongside two white units, the most seasoned African Americans, had been soldiers for about two months. They engaged in fierce hand-to-hand combat with the Confederates. The Confederate general noted the African-Americans' courage, but said the whites ran like whipped curves. One of the black units suffered 45% casualties, the highest percentage of a regiment killed in a single battle in the entire war. On July 18th, Robert Gould Shaw volunteered his Massachusetts 54th African-American unit to lead a night attack on Fort Wagner, South Carolina. Shell blasts tore huge holes in the ranks, but they marched on, eventually breaking into a charge. Despite deadly fire on three sides, a number of troops breached the fort's outer walls. Before being driven back, they sustained high casualties, including Shaw. But because he led African-American soldiers, he was denied an officer's burial by the Confederates. Meanwhile, African-Americans were still trying to get equal pay with whites. Finally, Congress passed a bill authorizing equal pay in 1864. African-American women also played key roles in the war, most often as laundry workers, cooks, and nurses. One of those women was Susie Baker Taylor of Georgia. When she was 14, she escaped slavery and became a teacher and a nurse. In 1902, she wrote her memoir, Remembrances of My Life in Camp with the 33rd U.S. Colored Troops, late 1st South Carolina Volunteers. Then there were women like Harriet Tubman, who served as a spy, scout, and nurse for the Union Army. Tubman led a raid of several boatloads of African-American soldiers in South Carolina that freed 750 people. By the end of the Civil War, 10,000 African-American soldiers had died in battle, 30,000 from illness or infection. 20 African-Americans received the Medal of Honor. Last February, Senator Cory Bush, Democrat, New Jersey, and Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat, Washington, D.C., reintroduced a bill calling for all the African-American soldiers who served in the Civil War to receive the Congressional Gold Medal in honor of their brave and selfless service to the nation. And that is our story for today. For the past in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. Mr. Monk's Last Case, a Monk movie, brings back the crew of the old quirky detective TV show. And, Harry says, Chicken Run, Return of the Nugget, an Aardman Studio Claymation sequel, is not quite as good as the original. So how does that feel to be working again? Like riding a bicycle. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, it's terrifying. That was Glip from the trailer for one of the more enjoyable films I've seen lately, Mr. Monk's Last Case, a Monk movie. It's directed by Randy Zisk, who oversaw 35 episodes of the detective series, Monk, from a screenplay by series creator Andy Breckman. The TV show ran for eight seasons, ending 14 years ago. I watched the show for two or three seasons and enjoyed it at the time. It's part of a group of quirky detective series. My personal favorite was Columbo with Peter Falk. Columbo spun off several movies based on the series. Falk also starred in a great satire period detective movie, The Cheap Detective, 1978, but I digress. Monk is streaming on Peacock. For those unfamiliar with the series, Monk was a San Francisco detective whose wife was murdered. The shock of the murder turned Monk, always on edge mentally and emotionally, into someone with 
obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD. Monk also has a few other phobias that are played largely for comic effect. This is kind of gimmicky and could even be offensive, but Tony Shalab, who plays Monk, infuses so much humanity into the man that we buy into the story. There's also a fine supporting cast. Most of that cast is brought back for the movie. The series concluded on a fairly upbeat note. Monk had finally solved the murder of his spouse, Trudy Melora Harden, and found an unknown daughter. The crew has been reunited for said daughter's Kayla McGee's wedding. Monk, it seems, had a sort of relapse due to COVID, where he didn't leave his place for two years. There's a funny scene at the airport where his daughter, who helped him through that period, notes, as people are using a hand sanitizer, that they've all turned into you, to which Monk replies, they'll hate it. They're at the airport to meet Natalie, Trailer Howard, formerly Monk's long-suffering assistant, now an Atlanta realtor, and Lieutenant Randy Disher, Jason Gray Stanford, who's become a sheriff in southern Jersey. Captain Leland Stottlemyre, retired, Ted Levine, joins us later. The former police captain's new gig is one of the movie's surprises. Of course, getting the band back together isn't complete without a murder, so we get one, sadly. They knock off a really sweet guy, Monk's daughter's fiancé. The prime suspect is James Perfy, as a Musk-like figure who plans to be the first private citizen to orbit the Earth. Mr. Monk is forced out of retirement to help his daughter. A fun addition to the Mr. Monk saga. I like the ending here, but I'd also be okay if they could bring Mr. Monk back for a couple more cases. It's streaming on Peacock and is well worth your time. Up next, another sequel. This one, 20 years after the original. Last time we broke out of a chicken farm. Well, this time, we're breaking in. That was clip from the trailer for Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, a fun sequel to the original Chicken Run. The Arbin Studio stop-motion claymation technique is again in use to good effect, this time directed by Sam Fell. The cast of characters is largely the same, but we have some new voice actors, most notably the two leads. Rocky Rhodes, the American braggart cannibal, is now voiced by Zachary Levy, replacing Mel Gibson, who was perfect in the original, and the smart, determined ginger with Thadawi Newton replacing Julia Sa'ala. Ginger's character is more fully developed than Rocky's. This time around, our chicken friends are also on an island paradise, safe from people, having escaped the farm. See last movie. The last movie was inspired by The Great Escape, the classic World War II concentration camp movie, but you know, with chickens. This time around, their young daughter, Molly, a fun Bella Ramsey, is bored in paradise and runs off in a van advertising Funland Farms with her new friend Frizzle, a fun Josie Sedwidge Davies, as a daffy chicken with a Yorkshire accent out for a good time. Ginger has been overly protective of her daughter and persuaded Rocky not to tell her the harrowing story of their, pardon the pun, great escape. So Molly doesn't know the great chicken-eating danger out in the outside world. Said outside world has morphed from a chicken farm concentration camp into a massive deadly chicken pot pie processing plant. The trapped chickens are in a playground setting and given mind-controlling collars to keep them content. Ginger, Rocky, and the gang are soon off on a rescue mission to break into the heavily guarded mechanized compound where they encounter their old nemesis the farmer and his even scarier spouse. The film is at its best with its wacky slapstick and its Mission Impossible inspired set pieces. All in all a fun sequel if not up to the standards of the original. It recently started streaming on Netflix along with the original. For WRT's Monday Movie Review I'm Harry Richardson.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Mike Moen from Wisconsin News Connection. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.